Start again, start again, begin. Start again, everyone. You're listening to Caterpillar Goo. I'm Rod Hayden. And I'm Flora. Hello, audience. It's been a while, huh? It has been a while. <laughs> we were like in the middle of pandemic for almost two years now. I know, it's been forever. It's been so long you got a dog. I know I got a dog <laughs> after 45 years. I wonder if he'll show up on this. Hmm. He might. He might. Today we're talking with Brooks Casson. We met Brooks a few years ago at a storytelling event. It was called Drinking with the Saints. Yep. And she told a story about being a stowaway on a cargo ship and traveling the world when she was young and adventurous. Do you remember that story? I don't. You have such good memory. <laughs> <laughs> well, between that and talking about Death Cafe, she she intrigued me, so I got back in touch with her years later and asked if she'd talk to me, and she was very nice. She said yes. I think she was nervous, though. Okay. Yeah, I really liked meeting Brooks. She's a, she's a fascinating person. She's a photographer in South Austin. She's a visual artist. She's a storyteller, like we found out. And she grew up as a military brat and a diplomat's daughter. And then in 2013, she and a friend, or a friend of a friend actually, brought Death Cafe to Austin. Death Cafe is an interesting title. What did you think of it was when you heard the the name I didn't know what it was but it, the, the name definitely makes you want to learn more about it it's all about being open and honest and talking about death and dying and aging and all the things that go around that go with death and dying and how so much of that is like taboo topic and hard for people to talk about and this just gives it a, a framework an excuse or Permission, I guess, is the thing. Permission to talk about it. And I wonder um, how the Death Cafe has been during the pandemic. Did they see more members or has it been hard for them to get together online? Yeah, I did talk to her about that. And it was interesting switching from in-person to online because it comes from England. And so it's part of it is drinking tea and eating cake while you talk about death. And that just seems so British to me. But <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to do that on Zoom. It is. But I think all of us working virtually, we figured out how to engage each other. We just have to do it separately. Drink our own tea and biscuit in our own place while we're Zooming with folks. Yeah. Make it work. Has it changed your viewpoint on death or dying in any way? Hmm. No, I don't think it changed my viewpoint, but it was it was cool to see someone trying to take away the stigma of it. I just heard a story the other day about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and how in the 60s, 70s, 80s, she worked to make talking about death more normal. She was the one who came up with the, the five stages of dying which most people now know as the five stages of grieving. 
the five stages of grief, the anger and the bargaining and all that. And when she started out, doctors and families of patients often didn't even tell a patient about what their diagnosis was or what their prognosis was was because nobody talked about death and dying. They would often even remove dying patients to remote places in the hospital. Doctors would visit them less often because I guess the idea was that death was in a way a failure, especially for the medical establishment. So it was just something you didn't want to admit, didn't want to talk about. And since it's something we all go through, like it's part of life, the idea of it being like secret or taboo or foreign or forbidden or whatever seems weird. And it's good that there's people out there like Brooks trying to normalize talking about it. Everybody's going to do it. (laughs) I wonder, do you think it's a cultural thing as well? Because I think in my culture and other um, Native American, African, other cultures, they do talk about death as a normal process. Yeah, that might be part of it. Death affects all of us, especially now in the pandemic. Like it's just in the air all the time. Yep. So um, the one that I went to, people talked about not just death, but, you know, loneliness, isolation, stuff like that. Somebody talked about a cat dying. You know, it doesn't have to be. It is whatever the the people who tend bring to it. That's that's valuable. Yeah, it's important to have that space to be able to have that kind of conversation because it is so uncomfortable to have that conversation in um, certain circles. Um, her members, what is the age range as, and is it only for women? No, I think it's for everybody and I don't think it's per any particular age group. There's young and old, there's men and women. There weren't any children in my group, but (laughs) I don't know. They could come, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) They probably would ask the most honest questions and have most honest observations. That's true. Here's the conversation with Brooks Casson. My name's Brooks Casson. I I don't know what else to say, except that I'm a Scorpio. I guess I should start the origins. Not that I knew at the time. Stretch back to when I was 32 uh, years old, and I joined, for some inexplicable reason, I joined the Austin Memorial and Burial Society. So I have been uh, a member of that for 40 some odd years. And um, I'd get the newsletters and they were always interesting to me. And that particular organization now is is called um, Funeral Consumers Alliance of Central Texas. And Nancy Walker is the executive director. She's fabulous fabulous. Uh, And it may have been her that introduced me to uh, Joe Jensen, who was an oncology chaplain at uh, Seton at the time. And I had all within a matter of a couple of weeks, I had heard about death cafes and my ears perked up. And then the topic came around again. It was about eight years ago. I met up with Joe and 
told her that I was interested in starting a death cafe. And I think that had occurred to her as well. And, and somehow we, we met up and we decided to start uh, uh, or to ha hold a death cafe. Of course, neither one of us had ever been to one, but um, we were both interested in it. Hers with the uh, end of life process with her, her patients and me by whatever fluke, natural inclination, I suppose. And so we uh, found uh, uh, or went to the Death Cafe International uh, website and, uh, and learned a little bit about the origins of Death Cafe. From the early 1980s, Swiss sociologist and anthropologist Bernard Curta and his wife Yvonne worked together studying the rites and rituals of death. After her death in 1999 and his retirement in 2002, Dr. Curta held the first of his Café Mortel, a salon of sorts that he facilitated gently with only a couple of rules. Participants must always exhibit deep listening and rigorous honesty. The purpose was to pierce the taboo of speaking openly about death. Dr. Krita continued to host his Café Mortel until 2014. In 2010, John Underwood, a web developer in the UK, was working on his own collection of projects about death. In his research, he read about Café Mortel and decided to hold an event in his living room in Hackney, London. He established the current death café model, built a website, standardized protocols, and spread the idea globally, with thousands of death cafes currently in existence in dozens of countries. A key innovation in John's model was the addition of tea and cake to every death cafe event. And traditionally, uh, and of course I jumped all over this one, uh, you serve tea and cakes at a death cafe very British, very European, and I was already attracted to that idea. I grew up in the military, and uh, the first, uh, uh, in uh, when I was four and five, we uh, we were in, uh, in England right after uh, World War II. So I have that, that European love of tea and uh, pomp and circumstance kind of way imbued in the early uh, neurology and preferences of me. And I went out to the Salvation Army and bought dozens of uh, teacups and saucers. And of course made a big production of the whole thing. And we ended up uh, in that first, uh, and we advertised, uh, advertised, we spread the word. And we had like 50 people show up way too many to do a death cafe effectively but nonetheless it was very new and so we ended up uh, joe and i broke the the group up into two circles and um of you know 25 people each and then each one of us facilitated uh, a circle and and i think we had two or three meetings in that mode and then it became obvious a big circle was too much to handle and have any kind of intimacy. So we changed it to four tops. 
So we had four people in a group. And then Joe and I would move around from, from table to table and just kind of sit in on the conversation. Every, every meeting I baked uh, homemade um, brownies that were chopped full of pecans and extra, um, extra chocolate chips in there and people brought their own uh you know their own water uh or tea or whatever it is they wanted and uh ate chocolate while we talked about death if you're going to talk about death you have to have chocolate it is just part of the deal and the format that we used there was um a talking stick and we used had uh prompt cards uh, you know like like a deck of cards with some questions on it that people could use to, to get their small group begun. For you to have 50 people show up on your very first one, clearly it it had some resonance in the community. I mean, it, it must have met a need that wasn't being met elsewhere for it to immediately just jump off like that. I agree. What, what do you think appealed to you? You said you joined the group about um, funeral information when you were 32. What do you think it is about death and talking about death that connected with you? Aside from the fact that I'm a Scorpio and I'm constantly in transformation, which means that, that I'm involved in a process of loss on a very regular basis, and I'm very aware of that. I can't answer why I joined it back when I was 32, except that it was interesting to me. You know, it's not like I've had a near-death experience. I can't, I can't say, tell you something glamorous like that. And it's not that I had my favorite childhood friend die in front of me. None of that. I didn't experience death in my family in any unusual way other than losing grandparents and then eventually, you know, in my 60s, losing, uh, 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 my parents died. So the only thing, I mean, I'm just making up stuff here. All I can pin it on is just my natural inclination to focus on um, the loss piece. I grew up in the military. My dad, my dad is, uh, you know, was an officer. So that whole mindset, and and I come from a long, I mean, my mother was, was second generation military as well. So I come from a long line of warriors. And that's all about um, following orders, doing just what you're told to do, and killing people. Now you don't want to inspect the killing people part. It was never talked about. The first, the first dead body that I was presented with was from my, my uh, father's mother, and I didn't want to look at it. So I didn't, you know, when, with the open casket. So I didn't. Avoiding, avoiding, avoiding was, uh, you know, it was how I brought, was brought up with, with the topic. Okay, so here's a, maybe a, 
a better answer. Especially in this culture, we uh, we're, it's a consumer culture. We are about getting things. We're not about releasing things. And all I know is that I've never been interested, for instance, in um, the beginning of life process. Didn't want to be a midwife. You know, didn't, didn't, wasn't particularly interested in birthings, but am very interested in the letting go piece, partially because it feels in this culture so off balance because we don't look at losses as a part of the process. It's something to be avoided. It's something to be not talked about, uh, run away from if you possibly can, or buy your way out. And I absolutely disagree with that. Um, uh, as I've aged, claiming death as part of my life is, and owning it and, and keeping the topic current is um, all a, a really important part of valuing life. Really the one death cafe that I experienced personally with you was on Zoom. I feel like I kind of missed a whole dimension of it with the the cake and the tea and everything. That seems like such a such a valuable piece to it. Do you miss that aspect of it in the COVID time? Well, um, it's a great question because, uh, to be honest with you, when when it became apparent that there weren't going to be uh, in-person gatherings, I thought do I want to give this up? And the answer was absolutely not. And, and especially in these times with the topic being so um, prevalent and ubiquitous, I forced myself uh, to learn you know, the mechanics of, of Zoom. And I wondered, would I be able to hold space electronically with people being little squares on the screen, would I be able to create intimacy under those conditions? But uh, let me back up and, and say too, Rod, that that death, every death cafe, even even mine from, from month to month, every death cafe is different. And every facilitator runs their, uh, runs their group in a different way. So there's a different flavor. Uh, there's a nurse in town uh, who started a second death cafe maybe a couple of years ago. I don't know whether it's still going or not. But again, I, uh, presumably because of her background being a nurse, the the flavor of, and I never went to one, I just, Heather Black, that's her name. Uh, I just had lunch with her once and her offering in a death cafe, I think was more um, practical things, you know, your paperwork and, and then the physical things that happen. So as you perhaps recall in the death cafe you went to, my interest is more in the um, emotional, spiritual, 
transformative aspect of death. And I, I, it's really important to me to hold that uh, space so that people can fall into that kind of intimacy. The, the topic is such a taboo and delicate topic that it, it really, whatever entry door is available, is important to, to, to open it because again, the topic is so not discussed in our culture. Did you shape yours intentionally to be what it is? Like, how did you prepare to start? How did you know how you wanted to run it? We became, if you can imagine, a, a, a circle of 25 people for the first few events down to a table, you know, of, of eight or 10 tables of four a piece. Automatically, the uh, intimacy has increased, right? So not that I thought about that at the time, it just became obvious that we didn't want to do the big circles. So we switched to the talking stick and the, the smaller tables. And then eventually, uh, Joe had, had retired. She'd gotten tired of co-facilitating. And so I was, I had the choice of, do I continue this on my own or, or not? And I, and I wanted to. So uh, I moved, uh, wondering if it would survive, but moved the venue to here to South Austin and began more like what you experienced when you came to the Zoom meeting. So the most I've ever had, the, the biggest number I've ever had uh, here in South Austin is probably 15 or 16, maybe 14, right around in there crammed in, into this small room, you know, people sitting on floors and so forth. But typically the numbers tended and uh, tended to um, float around up, you know, eight to 10, sometimes as few as six if it was raining and snowing outside or whatever. But, but it stabilized at a, in, in a smaller group. Now what I'm using is what, what's called the, the conversation cafe format. And so I'm finding that, and just briefly what that is, is um, you go around and you, you open the circle by going, each person says their name and why they're here and what they expect at the beginning. And then the body of, of a meeting is open to open discussion. And then uh, right before the end, you go back around the circle again. It's like a closing of the circle and everybody says this is what i got out of the meeting and that's a good way for uh to recall what it is and uh, but it also lets everybody else in the group know that their place and their offerings are important to the group as a whole and and with that this format that i'm using now i it there is so much richness rod uh, and people um discover things about their own uh, beliefs uh, and talk about their own fears and they uh, 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 
sometimes, much of the time, for instance, it doesn't have to do directly with death, but it always has something to do with loss. I was curious who tends to come. Are they typically people, I guess not, typically people that are dealing with a recent loss of a loved one or something like that? It tends to be people of age um, uh, that, are, that are aging into this, uh, this part of our lives. But, and there are some young people that come that have insights that just blow me away. You know, it could be that they're dealing with their own health issues, perhaps, um, and, and sometimes not. Sometimes they're, they're coming because, I, I don't know exactly why, but, but they're interested in the topic and or there's not very many places that are open to the public that you can have truly safe, intimate discussions. And so people are certainly aren't required to talk in Death Cafe. They, uh, on the other hand, in my opinion, they showed up for a reason. And I'd like to know what it is, you know? So I'll do what I can to and help them feel safe enough to, to speak uh, it's it's not about voyeurism for me. Um, it, it's it's about participating in uh, in a group uh, and uh, in a topic that is delicate and difficult to talk about. So uh, so for me at least, the structure is helpful in establishing the safety. So. Um, People come as they're able to, or as they're drawn to, or as they want to, and um, but and sometimes they'll come like two times and then skip a time or two and come eight times in a row, you know that that sort of thing. It it just depends on where they are, and sometimes they'll be gone for six or eight months and then all of a sudden they're back again. It's it's wonderful, I think, to have that kind of continuity and and familiarity for me. How has going online affected your turnout? I would think that in the time of a pandemic that people would be flocking to it. Yes, and, and I think that certainly has drawn people back. And I, uh, I have to say that uh, the, the numbers have stayed stable, uh, you know, kind of where I, was, where I was talking about, you know, in and out of a dozen. Uh, or so. But the other thing is, at this stage of the pandemic, people are zoomed out. I mean, they are just enough and uh, uh, of the uh, electronic communication and connections, which is why I do my best to keep it, to keep the electronic piece in the background and make intimacy a priority. So in order to do that, some structure is, uh, in my opinion, is absolutely necessary. And so is not, uh, the safety of not cross-talking. 
not having somebody want to fix uh, if I break into tears or something. The scariest thing is to have somebody want to fix me or make me stop. But my emphasis is when somebody is indeed having a breakdown of tears and emotions that they allow, are allowed to do that and, and begin to recognize their own strength in being held energetically in the group. And so I, uh, I talk about that at the beginning of every meeting, that these, these are the parameters and that silence is really important. So that, for instance, if somebody makes an offering of a, an incident or whatever, then I ask that before somebody else speaks, and you could be all excited about, oh, oh, I, I have this other experience that's similar to that that I want to talk about. But before they speak, I ask them to take a breath or two. And so what that does is that it allows the offering that has been made to land in everybody and it, it helps make the gifts of people's feelings and experiences sacred you've been doing it for eight years you said seven and a half yeah come come uh i think uh, next june it'll be eight Is that how right? do you think it's impacted you what do you, how do you think it's changed you to be doing this for so long? It surprises me every time I say the number of years, like really? Cause it, it seems so ordinary and, and I look forward to it because every single time rods, every, every single time it, I have not been to, um, I have not experienced a crummy one. And every single time I come away feeling satisfied, like I've had a really good meal. And as a Scorpio, um, it's important to me to experience life in as much with as much juice as possible. So I, I'm, I get a regular, uh, a regular dose of that, which I, absolutely crave and love and love to offer it i do it for other people and i do it for myself i would not do this if it did not feed me i'm too old for that kind of stuff at this point and i've never wanted to be and and not so inclined to be mother Teresa anyway Where do you see it going from here? What do you think it would take for you to feel safe to do it in person again? That's a good question. I will have to feel safe being in a closed room. At what I'm finding very interesting about COVID now is how different people have different levels of fear and safety around uh, around this particular virus. So as, as we both know, there's people that don't come out of their house, you know, and they still have their groceries delivered to the front door and they 
spray them with Lysol or whatever before they bring them in. And then there's those that insist that there's no such thing as a virus and they refuse to wear a mask. You know, it, it, uh, there's just all levels of how people deal with this. So I really won't know until I, until I know, but, and part of it will be, am I comfortable being in a closed room? And I, and I wouldn't say, because I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a, a reasonable answer to, to put a, uh, a pencil point on when there's a virus, then I'm going to do this. I mean, a vaccine, <clears throat> then I'm going to do so-and-so. I, I don't know that. I'll know it when I get there. Do you have, have you developed any relationships out of it? Oh, absolutely. Oh, sure. Sure. Uh, these days, of course, there's there's not much meeting outside, but I've had lunch with people and, and you know, continued relationships or, or telephone calls or, or whatever, that sort of thing. I mean, seven and a half years is a long time to have a thread of a, uh, a, a person in, a, in and out one's life. And so, yes, that's delightful. How do, you, how do you handle it if somebody dies, if there's a regular who's been coming? You said people come because of the age into it. Have people come and gone? Well, in fact, that, that, that has just recently happened. And so my, my way of handling it has been to um, reach out and talk to uh, the spouse. And uh, and uh, which I was doing before uh, before the, the the spouse died. Anyway, so it, it's more like a continuation of that. Or regular members, for instance, whose mom or dads died, then then um, I will express my own personal. Uh, feelings and, and sympathy around that. But there's no like uh, a, 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 a group collection and send us some flowers. There's none of that sort of thing going on. Do people come with misconceptions about what it's going to be? Have you ever had anybody say that wasn't? No, and, 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 and I, I'm glad to say no. And part of that reason is that everybody that I know of almost has come because of a referral. So they come knowing uh, a little bit of something about it. And maybe maybe what has prompted it is the, the death of a parent or a, a you know, a, a, a pet or something like that. And I, I also, because I'll have, I'll email them uh, back and forth ahead of time, because especially now that we're on zoom, I know who's going to show up because I, I send out a notice that death cafe is going to happen. And then these days, what I say is if you want to come, you need to email me back and let me know that you're coming. And that way, um, I have the chance to communicate with a newcomer 
and uh, let them know how I how I run the meeting and you know so that they could think well this isn't for me or I'm intrigued uh, you know I think I'll show up it's, it's very important to me to maintain to create and maintain the sanctity of the group which I could do uh, certainly in you know when we were in, in physical proximity and so that's one of the reasons why I'm careful about for instance not sending out the zoom in invitation to my full email list because I, I, I want to know who's coming and and that they are committed to a certain protocol you said a lot of it comes from referrals. Is that mostly how you, I don't know if market is the right word, but mostly word of mouth? Or do you, have you developed any relationships with like hospitals, hospice? No, no, it's all word of mouth. Yes. And I'm, I'm clear that although there's plenty of grieving that happens, that this is not a grief group. I'm, I mean, I'm not qualified to run run that I, I i i don't have a social worker's license or whatever and i guess i would like to emphasize it's not all about death what it's really about is living it's really about how do we be alive and hold in us and in our awareness the fact that we will not be here forever that's the entire point is that that it's that kind of wholeness that I'm most interested in um, uh, supporting because it's so lopsided in this culture. Well, I really appreciate your time. I know. Uh, Thank you. Thank I think you, you were nervous about doing it. I hope you found it a comfortable experience. I did. I did indeed, Rod. Thank you so much um, for asking and for prompting me to, to speak about what I love to do. It's, it's been a delight. That was Brooks Casson on bringing Death Cafe to Austin. What'd you think? It was really good. Very informative, knowledgeable. It's very interesting. She's an interesting lady. I use the word interesting too much. Because it's interesting to use interesting. <laughs> it was fun to talk to her. I think she was nervous about it. I don't know if she was wondering what my motives were or what I was going to do with it. But I think I think by the end, she was pretty comfortable. It was, oh, good. Yeah, it was good to talk to her. You, you make people feel comfortable. <laughs> Thank you, Brooks, for the time and the energy that you put into it. And this is Rod Hayden for Caterpillar Goo. And this is Flora. Thanks, Brooks. And we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.